If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I welcome author, lawyer, and depth psychotherapist, Benjamin Sells. I wasn't aware of Benjamin's work until fairly recently, but I'm so happy to have found him. His writing on topics of soul, beauty, love, and ecology resonate deeply with many of the subjects we've been covering on the podcast lately, and I'm honored to host him on his very first podcast appearance. Ben met and studied with two of our favorite renegade psychologists, James Hillman and Thomas Moore, back in the 1970s, and in his many books, he both contributes to their shared legacy and offers his own unique ideas to the canon of archetypal psychology. I don't know how it took me so long to find Ben's work, but I'm so glad I did. If you're interested in the work of James Hillman and Thomas Moore, I highly recommend checking out Ben's books, particularly the recent trilogy on soul, love, and beauty, available through Spring Publications and featuring cover artwork by Hillman's last wife and widow, Margot McLean. This conversation is the epitome of what I try to do here on the podcast and what I think makes it so unique. It's a deep and intimate meeting of two souls exploring topics that mean a great deal to both of us. In our conversation, we explore ideas around beauty, nature, aesthetics, animal intelligence, ethics, and ecology. Plus, Ben offers some touching anecdotes about his life and friendship with the late James Hillman. If you'd like to gain access to early release of full episodes and listen and watch free of advertising and interruptions, please consider supporting the podcast directly by becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com Howl in the Wilderness. Your financial contribution, support, and encouragement is what sustains me in this work. A very special thanks to my current patrons, who have enabled me to finally replace my beloved but ailing 2015 MacBook. We've created some incredible work together over the past eight years, and she'll be living out her retirement as a dedicated media streamer, filling our home with music and movies. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Benjamin Sells. Thanks for listening. here with Benjamin Sells. Benjamin, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's something I've been looking forward to since I recently discovered your work. Maybe to begin, could you just give people listening or watching a sense of place, like where you're calling in from? I'm in Riverside, uh, which is a a small village, about 9,000 people. We're 10 miles straight west of the heart of Chicago. So we're one of the closest suburbs to Chicago, and we're actually the first suburb that was built 
uh, before Chicago really got going. It's a remarkable place. There's a lot of history here. It was uh, it was originally settled by the indigenous peoples, and then the Europeans came when they uh, found the Chicago Portage, which is very close to here, which is the connecting point, the geographical connecting point that connects the Atlantic Ocean with the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a portage for canoers in the early trading days of fur trade. And it was really that portage that gave rise to the city of Chicago. So uh, it's a small community, but it's a very influential and important community in terms of not only regional history, but uh, U.S. history. Hmm. And based on the topic of some of your books, it seems like you have a deep connection to Chicago. Were you born and raised there? No, no, I, I'm I'm very much a, a transplant. I moved here from, from Texas, where I was going to graduate school. And I, it's been almost 40 years, though. I mean, so I, I feel it feels like home. I mean, this is Riverside is certainly my my home now. Mm. Uh, graduate school in Texas. Is that where you met James Hillman? It is. Uh, when I look back at this now, it, it almost seems like fate. I And this, this is actually a, a little personal story, which I don't often do, but it probably bears on some of the things that, that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I had a I had a teacher in college who taught an introductory course in religion, and I had never experienced someone who thought the way he thought. He was enormous. His name was Benjamin Ladner. He was enormously educated, but had this this infectious enthusiasm for ideas. And it was he was the one who suggested that I go to graduate school in at Southern Methodist University. And I went there because there were some phenomenologists that were working there at the time that he thought I might click with. But lo and behold, when I get there, Thomas Moore is teaching there. So Tom became my thesis advisor. And this was in the late 70s. And that's right when James Hillman came to Dallas. So it was through Tom that I got in, introduced to, to James's work. And then James and I became friends at the at the same time. And remained friends up until his passing, his unfortunate passing. But Tom and I are still in communication. And in fact, Tom is probably my one of my oldest living friends. So it's mm. a nice connection. Yeah, nice. Uh, you've, in addition to being an author, uh, your bio says that um, you, you've also been or are a psychotherapist and a lawyer. Uh, and as well, a stint as a mayor in a town in Illinois, right? So were you at that time studying law or psychology? Well, the the line of it was I, I did the, the psychological work in Dallas. And then I had an opportunity to uh, go on a fellowship to Syracuse, where David Miller was teaching at the time. But I opted instead to come to Chicago and go to law school. So I practiced law for a while, but uh, it wasn't really the lifestyle that I wanted. So I opened a psychotherapy practice and started writing. And that was what I was going to do. My plan was for the rest of my life. And about 26 years ago now, the phone rings and the woman who taught me how to sail on Lake Michigan wanted to know if I wanted to buy her sailing company. So I did. So I've been running uh, this is, in fact, it's the oldest sailing business in Chicago. So it's a wonderful life. I mean, I 
in the summer months, I spend my time on the water teaching people how to sail. And then fall and winter, I get to do my research and writing. So I really, like I say, it feels like it's been the hand of fate at work here. Hmm. So am I right in thinking the practice of law was actually um, a short period of time in your life? It was uh, about eight years. It, in fact, it came up to the point where I was I was to the point where I had to decide whether I wanted to go for partner or not in the firm that I was working in. It was a it was one of the big law firms here in Chicago. And it just it was one of those moments I'm kind of proud of, I guess, looking back where I had to make a decision about what kind of life I actually wanted to live. And that was not I liked law. I enjoyed law. I enjoyed the opportunity that it that gives a person to partake in the justice system. Most of the lawyers that I worked with were lawyers for the right reasons, but it was too constraining intellectually for me. I, I wanted something that wasn't quite so overtly rational and linear. And that, that of course, the Hillman and Moore's work is anything but that it's extremely intellectually rigorous, but it's far more imaginative and creative. And that's what, that's what I, I need to be happy. Mm. Yeah. Well, just dipping into your work, uh, I got the sense of meeting another soul man, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I don't mean a whole lot of them. Right. So I, I cherish those friendships with the soul men that, uh, I've been able to meet, you know, people like Tom Moore. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, being a soul man. Well, first, I think it's incredibly gracious of you to say. Uh, I feel similarly towards you. I've watched a number of your your other podcasts, and you certainly are a fellow soul man. I think that we have to, It's and this kind of gets to the heart of things, I suppose. It's the aesthetic responses we have to one another that we have to trust. And I think when we meet someone like what you're talking about, we sometimes we refer to them as soulmates or a soul brother or soul sister. When we when we have those kind of intuitive connections, we have to have the courage to follow them and, and not let our our competitive Western capitalistic mind keep us apart. That's I, you probably are aware in this past year, the Surgeon General released a report saying that loneliness is epidemic in the United States. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because we've lost that ability or that trust in, in our aesthetic responses to one another. So I really that's a very kind thing for you to say. Hmm. Well, that's interesting that you name it as an aesthetic response. Um it's often been a hard thing for me to articulate why I feel a certain connection or attraction or resonance with another person. Um, I have a tendency to chalk it up to something like, well, we've met each other in a past life. <laughs> Our souls know each other. They recognize each other. Um, I mean, who knows about that? I know like Hillman didn't uh, get into metaphysics. Um but I like this as an aesthetic response because the book that I've been reading of yours, that is at the heart of it. Um, kind of counter Aristotle's assertion that we are political animals, you assert that we are aesthetic animals and that um, the aesthetic response is is primary. 
can you maybe unpack that a little bit? Because it might be an, a deeper understanding of aesthetics than uh, what many people uh, think of, you know? Sure. But before I do that, let me let me comment on something that you just said about about James. Uh, I don't think that he would necessarily discount the notion that you meet people. It's not that you've met them before, but in his book, The Soul's Code, which I recommend highly to everyone to read, he he has this notion that we are born with the daimon, that the daimon that lives through us has selected the life that we live. And I think that the people we encounter, the friends we make, are part of that lived destiny. So I don't, it's it's no accident that I ended up at Southern Methodist University. And it's no accident that Thomas More was there. And it's no accident that you and I are talking today. Mm -hmm. It's how I imagine things, at least. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. But it's for me, I'm talking more about like, the the feeling of recognition or the feeling of immediate connection uh yet we might have been kind of nudged along a certain path to to meet people that we are meant to meet in order to live out our destiny but uh that kind of um pre-rational feeling of like recognition is the best way i can put it uh that i mean that's such a mystery to me but i think it has something to do with the aesthetic response that you speak about it does i i think we're, we're i think we're speaking about the same thing with just just different terminology i i agree with aristotle that uh, humans are by nature political animals in the sense that we are naturally called together in in a neighborly way a camaraderie way but my my premise is is that we exist primarily as aesthetic animals and that we are on this planet to appreciate beauty and to create beauty and to be beautiful. And that that's all that is required from us, that there is no other ethical demand put upon us by the planet other, other than those three things, to appreciate, to create, and to be beautiful. And unfortunately, and I learned this from James as well, what we suffer from in our, in our Western culture, our Western tradition, is the repression of beauty. And if I'm right, and I, I like what you were talking about, the sense of recognition, the sense of participating in the world in a way that is undivided, that we belong here, that we, we can't get away from this notion, this deep feeling that we belong here. And yet all of our ideas, the ideas of whether it's religious, or scientific or philosophical attempt to divorce us from the world. So for example, uh, we are taught through Christian tradition that we are meant to have dominion over nature. We're taught through that tradition as well as philosophical and scientific traditions that we are essentially different from the other animals on this planet. Those, those ideas are so thoroughly habituated in our mind that it's extremely difficult to get away from them. And yet they are catastrophically mistaken. The essence, I believe, is, is what you're talking about. When, when we encounter a wild animal in the forest, 
there is an unmistakable instantaneous sense of connection and familiarity. But then our minds set in and posit that we're somehow separate and different. And that is that is the that is the great loneliness of the modern mind. If if we can find ways to trust again our aesthetic responses, what we what do we find is beautiful? And, and counterwise, what is it that repels us? We can trust those responses. And I think that there's, and this is one of the things in the second book, because the book you're referring to is, is one of three that's that I wrote about beauty, love, and soul. There's there's a close connection between aesthetics and ethics. Ethics is not in the first instance a mental construction, it's an aesthetic construction. And if I know more about what it is that you find beautiful and what it is that you find repulsive or ugly, I have a much clearer idea of how you are in this world, what your ethical stance is toward the world. And it's, and those are the kinds of ideas that I, I try to work through in, in my writing. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of... Um... Uh, that statement, I think from a German romantic that Hillman loved to quote, uh, show me who you, show me what you long for and I'll tell you who you are. Tell exactly. me, you know, tell me what you long for. Uh, well, so one of the things, I mean, yeah, you deal with these, um, these topics of beauty, love and soul, which are like th three big undefinable things for me, uh, impossible to define concisely and definitely uh and so beauty as i'm reading your book it's starting to open up my mind to other concepts of beauty beyond what i've been conditioned to how to think about it like beauty as a subjective value judgment of something um maybe based on personal preference uh but it's uh yeah, the idea that it's subjective, but I think the thing that you're asserting here is that beauty is uh, pre-existing of our cognition of beauty. Like the the common phrase is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But I think what you're saying is that beauty pre-exists the beholding eye is one way I might think of it. That's exactly it. And there's a line in the book that I where I say it. It isn't that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's that beauty is what enables the eye to behold. And you really put your finger on the, the heart of the matter in, is that in my, in my way of imagining, imagination precedes cognition. And when I say beauty, one of the problems, and this, this is part of the repression that, that James used to talk and write about, we, we have reduced beauty to a kind of diminutive prettiness. There's an, there's an effete quality to the way we talk about beauty. You know, it's skin deep. There's a triviality to it. There's a, a superficiality to it. But for the ancient Greeks, for example, Aphrodite, uh, who was the goddess of beauty, was the, was the god that made all things apparent. Without Aphrodite, there would be no sensate world. There would be no connection to the world or even to the other gods. It is Aphrodite's smile 
that enables the gods and all things to appear. And you mentioned a, a little bit ago talking about that attraction. It's, it's beauty that attracts us. It's beauty that pulls us out into the world. And that pulling out, that leading beyond ourselves out into the world, that taking us beyond this, this crippling idea of subjectivity, that, that somehow the soul is, is mine. It's my secret possession. It's a secret self that you're not privy to. You, and this is how we think, you can't know the secret soul, the secret self that I have within. I can only reach that through personal introspection and reflection. And that leaves us all islands. It leaves us all separated from one another. Whereas if we take the, the Renaissance idea, and this is an idea that James Hillman brought back into common parlance of the anima mundi, the ensouled world or the ensouled cosmos. And we start to imagine that the greater part of the soul is beyond the body, is in the greater world. Then we have a way of starting to release ourselves from this kind of the whirlpools and eddies of, of subjective thought. And that's where beauty comes in. Because my sense of beauty, and I like that you talk about not being able to define it, because I'm I'm very proud that I wrote three books on beauty, and there's not a single attempt to define it in any of them, uh, because beauty isn't definable. Beauty does not belong to the rhetoric of definition. For me, I imagine beauty as things being as they are. I mean, there's there, there's a place somewhere in Plato where Plato talks about Socrates being beautiful, but Socrates was almost uniformly thought of to be physically an ugly man. But he was beautiful because he inhabited his soul. He was, he was beautiful because he was as he appeared to be. And I think that's what, when we talk about soulmates or being soul brothers and that kind of thing, I think that's the experience we're having. We have this experience that someone is seeing me and perceiving and knowing me and imagining me, most importantly, in, in ways that are not, are not accessible to me. I mean, we've only been talking here now just a few minutes, uh, but you already know things about me that I don't know about myself, which is a beautiful idea that we require one another, that we aid in the begetting of one another, that it's the interplay and the communication and um, the reciprocity of souls that allows the world to become enriched and fuller. It's, it's so sad to me when I think about how we have all been taught to think of ourselves as insular and cut off. There, there's a study that was done that I write about in the book, and a group of people were asked if they were part of nature or not. And a majority of people said that they were part of nature. The same group of people were then asked to define nature. The same percentage of people said that nature exists where we are not. Hmm. As soon as we show up, nature's gone. And it's it's that tension is that contradiction in the modern mind that is at the source of so much of our discontent. My sense is that 
we are in the world as aesthetic animals. That is our intuitive gut visceral experience of the world. But our ideas, the ideas that we're taught are counter to that. So we have this, we have this dissonance between our lived visceral vitality as animals and then the conceptual framework that we've inherited through our, our education and our culture. And those two things are not compatible. Mm-hmm. This is a new idea to me, uh, thinking about beauty as the thing presenting itself. uh, How how might I say it? Like authentically, honestly, without without a facade, something like that, right? So like if I look at a tree, a tree is not trying to be anything other than a tree. And so my response to it, what I might call beauty is the aesthetic response, the apprehension of something that is uh, completely true and authentic in and of itself. Uh, is it something like that? Yeah, that's that's very beautifully put. And and to, to just extend that idea a little bit more, the tree, when we encounter it, makes things possible for us that would not have been possible without its presence. So the calling forth of the tree to our aesthetic response deepens our experience of the world. There there was a, uh, James Gibson had this notion he called affordances. Mm -hmm. And he thought that that the natural world, uh, he made the word up, affordances, but the the natural world affords opportunity to the animals and all that live here. So, for example, the tree affords the opportunity to the bird as someplace to land, to nest, to hide seeds. And the affordances of the thing are what constitute the thing. And then along comes the bird. And it's the bird's presence that realizes what one of the opportunities that the tree affords. So there's this symbiosis between the tree, which doesn't do it intentionally for the bird the tree is just the tree but then there's this wonderful permeation between the bird and the and the tree but you're 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 expressing it very nicely this notion that authenticity is 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 a nice word adolf portman who james hillman relied on a lot in his work was he was a, a, a swiss zoologist talked about that the 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 appearance of animals well not only animals the appearance he he used a, a word that translated means self-presentation so in his notion and in James's notion and in my notion what we think of as a facade we have taught ourselves to think the beauty is skin deep Portman's notion and James's notion is that the interiority of something is right there in front of us. And we know this experience. We know this experience. If you if you ask any parent, uh, if they their child walks into the room and can they immediately read if there's something wrong, something's troubling, or something's happy. We all have this experience. We we read one another instantly in our daily lives. 
without any thought. It, as you say, it's forethought, it's back of thought, it's it's pre-rational. And that, in my work, is imagination. The imagination is what allows us to connect through beauty to the greater world. And without that connection, without imagination, and believe it or not, even Kant said this, without imagination, there would be no cognition whatsoever. But let's take it a step further. I would suggest that imagination is prior to, or maybe maybe we shouldn't say prior because that in, in, in infers a kind of causality. I would not separate imagination and perception. When I think one of the things that we find so striking about non-human animals is their sureness, the way a cat walks through the room. There's a certainty there. There's a, it's almost as if the cat unfurls itself as, as it moves through through the world. And that is the kind of immediacy that I'm talking about. And I am absolutely convinced that we have that. We are animals, but we cover it up through the repression of beauty. And if we can find ways to re-inhabit our animal sensibilities, to trust that when the hair stands up in the back of your neck, that's telling you something very vital. And an animal would respond to that. We second guess it. Mm -hmm. And that's where we go astray. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, there's so much in there. Um, I think uh, that animal surety, the animal certainty, like the certainty of their action, uh, when we apprehend that, I think we call that grace. You know, like the cat is so graceful, even as it's, I don't know, pawing at uh, <laughs> a bit of yarn or something, you know, and our dog displays this. She's a beautiful little mutt rescue dog. But she's, we always talk about her grace and the way that she positions her little feet. Uh, and and talking about that um, that deeper connection, uh, just the other day, we were sitting there cuddling on the couch watching something with Suki in between my wife and I. And I just had this sense that something was off with her. And I was uh, kind of like going through her fur, petting her, and I recognized that she had a tick. Now, she wasn't displaying any kind of overt signs of, uh, you know, a reaction to the tick, but I just had a sense that something was like a little off with her and we discovered the tick. And it was like, then she like really showed herself and kind of like, oh, found it. Um, but yeah, it's it's the strangest thing when, you, when you're attuned to somebody, whether it's a human or animal, you know human or not merely human or <laughs> any being you you pick up on on these very subtle hints um that i could never point to i could never say oh well because the way she was carrying herself there was nothing like that nothing that anyone else might have noticed but it was just a, a deeper inner sense um and it led me to take action to kind of uh go through her fur you know it was like the suspicion oh i think she might have a tick i don't know um, that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? If uh, if we can just trust that, those like subtle feelings and urgings. That is such a beautiful story. Um, 
a couple things that you said. They they are so graceful, as you say, but, and this is where the love comes in. Through their grace, they grace us. They are a blessing to us. And indigenous people all over the world have recognized forever the divinity in animals and the spirituality of animals and how important they are as spiritual carriers. But what I really think is so wonderful about the story you just told is first, it was that aesthetic response that you sensed something was off. Uh, that likely would not have happened with an unfamiliar animal. Hmm. It, and, and, that, and that that aesthetic sense, as you said, led you to action. You didn't just sit with it. You attended to is Suki a boy or a girl? Oh, uh, she's a girl. Yeah. So you attended to her. And when you relieved her suffering, such as it was, she responded and she let you know. I mean, that that is the essence of exactly what I'm talking about. That close connection through through aesthetics, because when you find something beautiful, you often come to love it. Mm -hmm. And when you come to love it, you want to care for it. You want to attend to it. You want to protect it. And most importantly, you want to, to the, to the degree that you can with your love, you want to help the beloved become more fully realized, to become more beautiful, more, more fully what they're capable of being, but the, but what they wouldn't be able to do without your love. See, that to me is the great connection that, yeah. that love offers us. Uh, Rilke, the poet, had a beautiful phrase. He said that the highest task between two beings was to guard the solitude of the other. Hmm. And that's that's how I think of loving relationships. I mean, I would not be, I would not be, I would not be able to be who and what and how I am without the love of my wife, mm -hmm. without the love of my friends, without the love of my village. We we depend, we're we we depend on one another to be who we are. And and that's why I I resist so strongly and vehemently against this idea of the secret self or the secret soul and insist that we we depend upon the imagination of others to be mm -hmm. and to become uh okay yeah geez there there's so much there like so going back to the relationship between the tree and the bird and how um the bird affords the tree uh, all of these potentials like um i think the way he puts it is it's it's landability it's yes. nestability right. it's uh rustleability uh <laughs> right. it's the interaction between um all the things of the world that uh draw out a, a thing's purpose or potential and and so human relationship can be like that but so often isn't uh I think sometimes we think about love as well. I, I accept the person as they are. I give them the freedom to be, 
But what you're saying, I think, adds another level to it in that our becoming is afforded by our relationship with others. That with in conversation with you, in relationship with you, I can become something um, more fully myself or more than I can conceive of, more, more than something I can strive for. I mean, that's very interesting to me. Um, am I getting getting it right? Yes, yes. And and see, I would I would extend the idea of affordances when when Gibson talks about it, he means physical affordances. So as you're saying, right. a ledge is is sit onable kind of thing. I'm suggesting that there's there are imaginative affordances that your presence as an image in what I call an ecology of imagination. So that if we imagine all, all things as first of all images that are that are addressed to the imagination, uh, there's this, you afford through your presence, and, and let's keep in mind that when Gibson was talking about this, th- these these affordances are constitutive of the tree. I'm saying that the imaginative affordances are constitutive of you and me. And that like the tree, you afford me imaginative possibilities that I would not have without my encounter with you. You're my tree, I'm your bird. And and that sense of reciprocity and of depending upon one another. You know, one idea that I talk about in the book is, uh, I think it's this book, uh, is this notion of independence. We tend to think of independence as being solitary. If I'm independent, I'm a part, I'm a hero, I'm up on my white horse. I argue that we are that we become free when we recognize how we are in dependence, the more we can recognize the things that we depend upon, the things that afford us the possibilities of being who and what we are, that is where freedom arises. Yeah, we become free of the burden of uh, self-sufficiency, of autonomy, all of those things, right? Look, I've been trying to make a case for dependency for a while, and it's one of whenever I put that idea out there um, that codependence isn't the bad thing that modern psychology purports it to be. I get it's one of the most controversial things I I talk about online, and it's the thing that I get the most blowback from, often like violent blowback to this idea that I would say you know I would make a case for codependency as the truth of things or the reality. Um, so that's really interesting. So you're saying dependence, recognition of our dependence on things is actually freeing to us. I I, I know very well of the blowback. Of yeah. what you <laughs> I'm not alone. Oh, I can, you can share some of the repercussions. Yeah. Um, probably the two ideas that I get most pushback on are, for one is this idea of dependency. And huh. because we've turned it into an ugly word. Yeah, you know, we've made it pejorative when it's one of the most beautiful things 
that we can. I know. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I get pushed back on is is this notion that um, that this inner self idea, uh, and that we depend on the imagination of others to to be who and what we are. And yet, I think it's I think there's such a clear. And here, here's my lawyer hat. There's such a clear cut case for this. If we think back over, because we're both old. I'm older than you, but you're old enough to know what I'm getting ready to say. If we think back over our lives and how the inner voices that we have heard over time that have told us do this or that or said that we're some way or the other think how often in retrospect they're wrong we are wrong about ourselves on a daily basis it's the people who know us it's like it's like me confusing what i see in the mirror with who and what i am i'm just seeing a flat reflection the people around me see me in my wholeness. They see me in my organic form. They see how I am in the world, how I move through the world, how I act, what what my morals are, what kind of choices I make. Am, am I a kind person? That, that perception and the imagination of the, of the polis, the city, is what we must have. And this is why Aristotle's right. We are by nature political animals. We require one another in an ontological sense, in a metaphysical sense. Without you, there is no me. Mm -hmm. And that's why this notion of being, and and this all ties back into the the aesthetics. By, By trusting our aesthetic sensibilities to show and teach us how and where we are dependent is what helps us constitute our souls. Yeah. And like um, beauty being a connecting principle that is the the precondition for uh, civil sociability and like true democracy, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, The, the town that I live in, Riverside, was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was is considered like the father of, of landscape architecture. And Olmsted had a, a deep conviction that nature has the power to soothe and be therapeutic for the soul. But he also was a very strong activist for social reform and democracy. And his idea was that beauty stimulates the free flow of imagination. And that free flow of imagination, and now this is these are his words, leads to an, an enlarged sense of freedom. So mm-hmm. through beauty, beauty gives rise to love. And that sense of beauty enlarges our sense of freedom. So that is why, in my view, historically, if you look at it, the autocrats, the tyrants, who were who do they go after first? The artists, the poets, the people who bring beauty and love into the soul, into the world, because they know intuitively that when we are in the thrall of beauty or in the rapture of love, there is no place for tyranny to take hold. Right. 
There is no place for hate to put down roots. And so that's why they go after beauty and love first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That um, <laughs> yeah, well, because beauty uh, and love connect, and what they rely on is division. Yes. Um, right? Because if I if I'm open to the beauty of all things presenting as they are, you know, the other as beautiful, uh, that appreciation um, uh, refuses violence upon it and uh, encourages care uh, and reverence. Um, God, this is at the heart of some really uh well, and press, press that pertinent things happening right now in the world, yes. right? Press that just a little bit more. If if we move toward this aesthetic way of being in the world, there are no others. Because the the self and other dichotomy is one of the great mistakes of the Western mind. And and it's it's attributable to Descartes and this whole notion of mind and body and self and others and all this. But if if I begin to imagine as and Jung said this, psyche is not within us, we are within psyche. It, we are we are part of an ensouled cosmos. Then the tree is not another, is not it's it's different in degree as Darwin would have said, but it is not different in kind. There is a mutuality uh, between the the tree and I. Mm-hmm. I, I remember going to uh, a Pueblo in New Mexico years and years ago, and there was a tree in like the central plaza of this Pueblo and the town had been built around it. And I got out of my, I was there looking at pottery of all things. And I walked by this tree and kind of, you know, gave me a, a jolt. Uh, I mean, I had a physical reaction to this tree. And later that evening, I was back at the bed and breakfast where I was staying. And I told the story to the owner of the bed and breakfast. And uh, she started laughing. She said, that's why the Pueblo's there is because of that tree. We have these experiences, these visceral, I would say, aesthetic responses to the world, but then we poo-poo them. Mm -hmm. Well, that was me projecting. It wasn't. I knew nothing about that tree. It impressed itself upon me. So this notion, all these ideas that that we banter about so habitually, you know, that I have a secret self and that I I project onto the world so that if I say, you know, if I, if I say that, you know, my cat is happy, I'm being anthropomorphic, you know, all these just <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous ways of imagining things where, that really that really point to our inadequacy. The limitations of our consciousness, the limitation of our language, and I make the, the point, and you've experienced this with your with your pet. For me to say that that my cat is happy, I'm not saying that she's happy the way I'm happy. She's happy the way a cat's happy, but that doesn't mean that the word happy is anthropomorphic. 
It just means that's the limitation that I have in my language and my conceptuality of seeing and appreciating something in her that I feel intuitively that is like what it is for me to be happy. So this, the more we can break down these barriers that we've, that we've built between us and nature and the denigration of, of, of other animals as not having consciousness or being capable of imagination. And I mean, it's, it, it has always surprised me. If you look at the, especially at the history of consciousness and the sense, notion of consciousness within animals, how so many smart people could have been so wrong for so long. I mean, it, even to this day, there are people who reject the idea, the notious notion that animals have consciousness. I mean, it's just, it is so intransigent and it all goes back to our arrogance and our hubris, which is our central human sin. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, make a case for animals having uh, access to imagination. How does a bird know how to make its first nest? It doesn't uh, get mentored into nest making. It leaves the nest it was born, raised in to a certain point, very short time. It goes out and at some point starts collecting things to assemble a nest that is remarkably like the nest that it was born into and going all through its ancestry, robins make a particular style of nest. Hummingbirds make a particular style of nest that are so beautiful and delicate um, and yet hold up remarkably well because it's learned to take uh, these bits of plastic that I think it must get from some construction site somewhere and that makes good nesting material. Oh, and the feathers will make it nice and soft and warm. Um, that is a remarkable, innate, unlearned intelligence. Um, so the nest exists in the in the hummingbird's imagination before it exists in the world. How can it be otherwise? And and that nest you just held is decorative. So, it's beautiful. But but <laughs> let me press that just a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So that little piece of plastic that's in there, we could look at it and. As you say, rightly, you know, it's good nesting material, but hummingbirds are, are one of the species that that pick materials for their aesthetic, pleasing quality. Uh, there's I write a little bit about the bowerbird in mm. the book. Uh, the bowerbird builds these intricate, lovely bowers uh, to attract. It's like a little amphitheater. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a little amphitheater, and they're built to attract the female bowerbird. And the it's like he sets the stage for his mating dance. That's it's, that it's is amazing. Exactly, that is exactly what's done. And the bowerbird, the male bowerbird, will go out and collect uh, colorful items and will create a, a a pattern in front of the bower. And if a researcher moves a pebble or moves a bottle cap or whatever, when the male bowerbirds come back, comes back, he'll put it back where it, where it was. Where it belongs. Where it belongs. Exactly. And now what's interesting about this is that the, the bower and the decoration of, of the, the bower, it's, its long-term purpose 
And interestingly enough, the, the, the amphitheater quality that you're talking about is designed in such a way that when the male bowerbird stands at the back, the perspective makes the bowerbird look larger. <laughs> so the now the a scientist would look at that and say, well, this is natural selection. The, the bowerbird is just doing this to get the female to mate because she comes around and decides which bower she wants, is which one's the best. Right. My, and, and well, and he's gone through a whole stage of trying out different strategies. And this one has been the most successful. Therefore, it's the one that gets perpetuated down the genetic line, right? This evolutionary natural that selection be, model. That would be yeah. that would be the the party line. <laughs> yes. But my point is that the end result might be to attract a mate, but the selection and the placement of the materials in front of the bower is aesthetic. The male, the male bird is making is making aesthetic choices that are unrelated to sex or in some kind of survival. Hmm. As you said, he's putting it where it belongs. And that is an aesthetic choice. According uh, to his in individual aesthetic sensibility, because the way he yes. arranges it isn't going to be like the way his uh, his buddy down the path arranges it, right? It's unique. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and the way he arranges it will appeal to the aesthetic sensibility of this female, whereas the one down the road there will appeal to an aesthetic sensibility of a different female. Almost as if there's something guiding them toward this shared fate. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, do birds have diamonds? Uh, I, <laughs> what I an amazing that. idea, right? I love that very much. <laughs> I would say yes. I would say yes. After the after the story about the bowerbirds, I'm saying yes. Okay. And challenge my <laughs> belief all you want, but um <laughs> Hey, can we do a little um, two-minute break before we sure. continue? Absolutely. All right, one sec. Okay, okay so um, just to recap a little bit, I, I love this. Um, I think of it like an equation, kind of uh, making a case for the return to beauty, not the return of beauty. I think you've you discovered that in the writing of the book that it's our that beauty is pre-existing; it's always there. It's always available, but it's about reorienting ourselves toward it, opening ourselves to uh, receiving it, to being um, grasped by it. Uh, but so you've got this uh, kind of equation that uh, our apprehension of beauty leads to love and love leads to attachment, but also belonging. And belonging is a topic that I've uh gotten into on the podcast with uh one of my teachers Stephen Jenkinson it's a very curious word i mean he opened it up for me etymologically um and it's another one of those words that's really hard to define uh when you really open it up um this was an excerpt of a longer conversation if you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.